word. Father, we thank you for your word to us, that you uh, speak to us uh, through these words and uh, even at times when what we hear from you uh, might seem a little confusing or unclear or hard to receive, uh, we know that you are speaking. So we ask that you will uh, bring us clarity this morning as we look at this passage uh, and in all things we may know that you are uh, all that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going through these chapters in 1 Corinthians that speak about the matter of uh, human sexuality and marriage and uh, all the different combinations that we experience of being married or unmarried or uh, married and then no longer married or remarried, whatever combination. We need to to seek God's wisdom uh, in all of these things. We did run out of time last week to look at the final verses of the passage that we had about uh, when a believer is married to a non-believer. And uh, before I get into today's passage, I just want to spend a few minutes looking at, at that. And we'll actually see that these verses actually fit quite well with our, our passage for today, which makes sense because it's all one continuous letter that Paul wrote. Verse 14 might sound to us like Paul is saying that in some way an unbelieving spouse is somehow saved by virtue of having a believing spouse. The husband is made holy because of his wife. What does it mean for an unbelieving spouse to be made holy by their spouse? Well, we get ourselves into trouble when we, we try to read this too simplistically and we read it out of the context of all that Paul is saying here. Firstly, we might have too narrow an understanding of this word holy. Literally, the word means separated or set apart exclusively for God. If we think of God's holy people, Israel, they were separated, they were set apart from the other nations to be a people dedicated to him alone. As a whole nation, they were a holy people. And anyone who joined them was brought in to be a member of this holy people. Anyone who was living in Israel, even if they weren't an Israelite, in some sense, shared in the holiness of the community. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What he's saying there is on the outside and according to their family tree, There were Jews who were Israelites according to the flesh, but they weren't Israelites according to faith. They were still a part of God's holy people, but not in a way that actually led to salvation because they thought they could justify themselves by works of the law rather than by faith in God. 
So in this sense, a person may be made holy by being connected into God's people through their believing spouse, believing husband or wife, even if in their own hearts they don't yet have faith in Jesus. That explains verse 16. This sanctified spouse still needs to come to saving faith in Jesus. And the believing spouse should be praying that God will do that through them. And when we look at the context of this verse, we see that Paul is not saying these things in order to discuss the theology of sanctification and holiness. He's saying this in order to give an assurance to the believing spouse, especially if they have children. Um, There. It may be that the Christian partner in the marriage feels as if they're in a non-Christian home or a non-Christian family that it is the non-believing spouse who sets the precedent for how God views their family and their household. I believe that Paul here is, is wanting to encourage that believing family member to see that their presence in that home is the presence of Christ in that home. That, that family is a Christian family, even if only one member of the family is a Christian. Holiness is stronger than uncleanness. Light is stronger than darkness. There's no such thing as an object called a dark that you bring into a lighted room that causes the room to go dark. But we have a thing called a light that you bring into a dark room and the light shines and dispels the darkness. Similarly, because of the gospel, because of Christ's presence in us, the unbeliever brings the light of God's holiness into that family. So, a Christian parent who's married to a non-Christian doesn't need to be anxious about their children. They don't need to fear that somehow their non-believing spouse will be a hindrance to their own children coming to know Jesus. So we can easily read and dissect these verses in this section in 1 Corinthians and uh, try and work out with a list of shoulds and should nots that we can apply to all the various situations that people find themselves in. And we're certainly commanded here, there are commands clearly in these passages that we shouldn't ignore, that we should be eager to obey. But remember, as we've been hearing, the the motive of God's commands is always love. He instructs us to encourage us, to build us up, not to tear us down or discourage us. So it may seem like a burden to be instructed to remain in a marriage with a non-believer, especially if sometimes that means things are tough. But we need to be encouraged to see the power of the presence of Christ 
in us. That he will enable us to face those challenges. The gospel still has the power to save our children. It still has the power to save our non-believing wife or husband. just may not happen in the time frame that we want it to happen. The key to seeing all of these things that we are looking at in these chapters to know what it means to glorify God with our bodies, to, to magnify and to point to Christ, the bridegroom in our lives, is ultimately about knowing what it means to have contentment in him. And that's what comes through clearly, I believe, in today's passage Paul said in Philippians 4, in response to having received some financial help from the Philippians, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this is a name it and claim it theology. The all things that he mentions here are all of the things he's just mentioned. Being low and abounding, having plenty and being hungry, being in abundance and being in need. All of those things require strength that comes from God. Because in the good times, if we're not drawing strength from him, we'll think that we can do it in our own steam. So we need his strength for abundance and times of need. He's not saying that when times are good we can find contentment in the things that we have and then when things go badly we can switch over to finding contentment in him. No, all things, whatever situation, we're to find contentment in him alone. Only then will our hearts be guarded against idolising the good things that we have. And also they'll be guarded against becoming angry or bitter when we don't have the good things. There's a saying that's popped up from time to time in movies and books Wherever you go, there you are. That's a thought that originated with a, an author called Thomas Akempis. He was a 14th century writer. Uh, you may know him as the author of uh, the book called The Imitation of Christ. I don't agree with everything he says in there, but what he says here is quite good. He says, no one is so touched with a heartfelt sense of the passion of Christ as the man whose lot it has been to suffer. The cross then is always at hand and everywhere awaits you. You cannot escape it. Run where you will, for wherever you go, you take yourself with you and you will always find yourself. Now he's not saying there 
uh, find yourself in the modern individualistic way in which we say I'm going to go travelling in order to find myself. What he's saying there is wherever we go, we'll always be confronted with the reality of ourselves, of our great need for the work of the cross of Christ, to deal with our sin, to deal with our weaknesses, our failures, our dashed hopes. See, the Gospel tells us that wherever we go, not only will we find ourselves, but we'll also find Christ and his cross. Wherever you go, Christ is there. No matter your situation, you can find contentment in him because you are in Christ. You can never be anywhere without him. In fact, no matter where you are in the world, your true location is in Christ. This is the key to knowing how to respond to all these different scenarios that Paul addresses here. Contentment in him. Do we know the Father's sovereign commitment to care for us, his children? Do we know the absolute sufficiency of Christ and that we are assured of our acceptance by the Father in him? Do we know that the Holy Spirit is powerful to lead us into the truth and the reality of us being children of God? If our faith in the sovereign triune God is more than just lip service, and if we see him as much more than just a means to get help when things go wrong, then we also need to see that the primary way we glorify God with our bodies and with our hearts and our soul and our mind is to find contentment in him. Psalm 62, 1-3 says, God alone, in, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So, what does this contentment look like? What we see here in this passage in 1 Corinthians is it's a willingness to find joy in whatever situation we're in. Trusting that the sovereignty of God means that we're here because of his good plan for us. Yet at the same time, we're ready to change and willing to change when God in his sovereignty makes that clear. In verses 17 to 24, the word for call appears ten times in just a few short verses. And this principle of remaining as we're called uh, appears three times in this section. Here in verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to, to him and to which God has called him. Then in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then verse 24, 
So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And that word condition is different in the English, but in the Greek it's it's actually in whatever calling each was called. So he uses the word twice there. But then to really press the point, he makes that comment at the end of verse 17. This is my rule in all the churches. Now the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which literally means called out. Ek means out. Kalos is Greek for call. The church is a people who is defined by the fact that we have been called out of the world and called to gather together as God's holy people. We might often associate the word calling maybe with ministry or vocation. Uh, When I first applied to study at seminary, I was required to give an account of my call. Or in other words, how I knew that God was leading me into ministry. That's often how that word is, is used. But this passage here tells us that every Christian is called, not just those with particular ministries. Primarily, we've all been called by God through the gospel to repentance and faith in Jesus. Calling is first and foremost the step in the work that God has done and is doing to save us. It's the work that began with foreknowledge, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. But see, it begins with foreknowledge. Calling is part of that process, but how does it finish? Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I'm called by God because he foreknew me from before the foundation of the world. And my calling will ultimately result in me being glorified. This whole process from beginning to end is secured because it's based on God's actions and not my own. So to be described as someone who is called is to make a statement about my absolute security in him from beginning to end. Out of this security, I can then confidently see that whatever situation I'm in, it's, I'm there because it's exactly where God wants me to be at this moment. It's an important part of him making me more like Jesus. So if and when he closes a door on one season and opens a new one to walk through, then I'll move. If the door remains shut, I'll be happy to stay where I am. I'll seek to find my sufficiency in Christ, not in my situation. And by doing so, I'll actually be seeking true joy. 
And we saw that, didn't we, in that principle of a believer married to a non-believer. Regardless of the past circumstances that led to that situation, regardless of whether it was a bad decision to marry a non-believer or maybe that person became a believer after they were married, well, it remains a marriage because marriage is creational by virtue of the fact that it's one man and one woman committed to one another for life, regardless of their religious affiliation. So Paul says, honour the marriage and remain as you are. But if in God's sovereignty the non-believing spouse demands a divorce, for the sake of peace, he says, allow it to happen. If you cannot be a witness to your non-believing spouse by remaining in the marriage, seek to be a witness to them in the way that you show grace and love if you have no choice but to separate. But back to 17 to 24. Between these three calls to remain as you are in the calling that God has given you, there are two cases that Paul uses to make the point. Um, Here we are. The first is circumcision. Now, not really an issue for us today, but it was back then when the church was a very clear mixture of Jews and Gentiles. A Jew who became a Christian understood that their circumcision no longer counted because true circumcision was the circumcision of the heart. And a Gentile who became a Christian, they understood that they had been grafted into the true Israel. They had become a true Israelite by faith. So the question was there, should Gentile Christians get circumcised to indicate their connection with God's people of Israel? Or should a Jewish Christian remove the marks of circumcision to indicate that they were no longer bound by that law? Well, the answer, Paul says, is neither. Because whatever matters is not the external marks, but the transformed life that comes as a result of being called by God. Now, we know that not long before Paul wrote this letter, he'd been joined in his ministry by a young man called Timothy. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, and he was not circumcised. But Paul had him circumcised, because he knew they were going to be doing ministry to Jews. And so he wanted to make sure that Timothy had opportunities to minister to the Jewish people. So in that case, Timothy did not remain as he was when he was called, because the cause of the gospel was a much bigger, more important matter than whether he was circumcised or not. The second example Paul uses is that of slavery. Many of the early Christians were slaves, especially in Roman cities like Rome and Corinth. Uh, Many people were slaves voluntarily because they'd entered into a binding agreement 
Others were slaves because they or their ancestors had been captured and they were born into a slave family. Either way, slaves were bound to their master legally until their debt was paid or the agreed time was was reached or until their master was generous and decided to give them their freedom. When that happens, Paul says, by all means, see it as a gift from God. The opportunity comes, avail yourself of it. Otherwise, know that true freedom isn't defined by your legal status in society as slave or free. To be a slave of Christ actually is true freedom. To be owned by him because he's bought you with his precious blood, that's the status that overrides any earthly commitments, whether it's a slave or a free person. So these principles are then applied to questions of marriage and singleness in verses 25 to 28 and then again in 36 to 40. Whether we're married or whether we're unmarried, we need to find our contentment in Christ not in our relationship status. We shouldn't think that the grass must always be greener on the other side of the fence. We shouldn't think that we somehow need to bring about change in order for us to be truly fulfilled or even better, in order for us to serve God better. Because before God, my status is in Christ. And human relationships don't change that. So if in his sovereignty marriage comes, there's nothing wrong with taking that gift and seeking to glorify Christ in it. If marriage doesn't come, well, I still should seek to glorify Christ anyway. Besides, we're reminded here in verse 28 that we mustn't have this false fairy tale view of marriage that uh, you see in the Disney movies. I'll find my soulmate and we'll live happily ever after. Anyone here who is married or has been married can testify that there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage partner. Marriage is hard work and it brings its own set of problems that come with living in a fallen world. So if you're not married and you think getting married will solve my problems, you'll just exchange your current set of problems for a new set of problems that you'll have to deal with. And it's all in the sovereignty of the Father. He'll use whatever we struggle with to make us more like Christ. And right in the middle then of this application... Paul reminds us that we cannot seek ultimate security, contentment in this world. Firstly, he gives a theological reason. The way things are now before Jesus' return is temporary. The present form of this world is passing away. 
Now sure, the Father is using everything, including suffering, to make us like Jesus, but the time will come when this present world in its form will come to an end. It will be replaced with the new heavens and the new earth. Whether it's marriage or singleness, whether it's sorrowing or rejoicing, whether it's goods or business deals, we must hold all of them in open hands, knowing that it's the Lord who gives and it's the Lord who takes away. And all of those things will eventually fade in the light of his glory. Secondly, he gives a pastoral reason. I want you to be free from anxieties. What is anxiety if it's not a lack of contentment? Anxiety comes when we start to consider or to deliberate all the what-ifs. Everything that could potentially go wrong in the future, as if God wasn't loving or sovereign. And then anxiety escalates as we think of these possible negative outcomes as if they're present realities or as if they're guaranteed to happen. So anxiety is when our minds and our hearts are locked onto the horizontal world of cause and effect and the truth of sin and evil instead of on the vertical reality of the sovereign Father who's secured our life in Christ. See how Paul here is not pitting one state against the other, marriage or being unmarried. What he tells us is both married and unmarried people can be anxious, even anxious about things that are good. The unmarried person can be anxious about how they're using the opportunities they have as a single person to serve the Lord. They might say, am I doing enough? Am I making the most of the time I have available because I'm not married or am I living for myself? Is the Lord pleased with me or does he require more? But then the married person, whether they're a man or a woman, can become anxious about how they're fulfilling their responsibilities in marriage. Am I being a good husband? Am I truly loving my spouse with sacrificial love? Is my spouse happy with me or not? Now all of these are good things that we should be concerned with. We, we should want to please the Lord. We should want to please our husband or wife. But Paul says, I don't want you to be anxious about them, as if your fulfilment will be found in your performance or God's approval will only be given based on the level of commitment to him. Remember what we learned with the children a few weeks ago. Why did God make me? Anyone tell us? So that I would glorify him and enjoy him forever. Now that's not my idea, I didn't write that. I took it from the opening question of the Westminster Catechism. See how this is a claim that glorifying God 
and enjoying God go hand in hand. I must be seeking and striving for joy and contentment if I'm going to live a life where I glorify God with my body. I might follow all the rules about purity, about personal holiness. I might be successful in fleeing from sexual immorality. I might be an ideal husband or a perfect example of how an unmarried person can devote themselves to the things of serving God. But if it's all driven by anxiety instead of contentment, am I really glorifying God? Will anyone look at me and say, I see how it's worth being prepared to lose the whole world in order to gain your soul, that it's worth picking up your cross and following Jesus because I see you have a sense of satisfaction in him. We need to be constantly hearing Jesus' words to us. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Surely that's a call away from anxious living to a life of contentment. We often hear these words on their own, but let's see what he says just before that. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. This is true contentment. The Son knows the Father and he has chosen to open wide the doors of the Father's household and to bring us to know the Father as well, just as he does. Could it be that you need to come afresh to the Son and to the Father and to unload to them all of the burdens, all of the anxieties that you have about your life situation, whatever that is. If you do, his promise is guaranteed. You will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, we hear that invitation from your son. And maybe we look at our lives and we wonder how that could ever be the case. How could someone take all of the burdens that we have in our hearts and in our lives and give us rest? Yet your son, Jesus, is able. And we see that because he took all of our burden, the burden of our sin and our shame and our guilt, and he bore it to the cross and he did away with it once and for all. So, Father, we come. We come to Jesus with our heavy burdens, with our tiredness, our weariness, with our fears, with our anxieties and all of our uncertainties. We come to him and we give it to him and we receive the rest that you promise through faith in him. Amen.